Good morning, everyone. You guys doing okay sitting in the middle? Is this just totally messing with you? Yes. Oh, this is not. I, oh, I know where you normally sit, Jenny. Not today. Not today. So, you know, Jesus sent his disciples out two by two, casting demons out and healing people. We're not asking you to do that. This morning, we're just asking you to move from that section to this section. Okay? So I just want you to be... And actually, and here's the reason why. I mean, and I give uh, Dan a hard time, but just like, I felt like when I've been up here at times, I'm going, Hey, Shibies, you tracking with me? Shibies, you guys see me over here? Anyway, so now you're right here. I appreciate you right here. Uh, anyway, uh, that was Dave and Kayla Lozowski. And Dave and Kayla are part of our Jackson site. And they're leading what's called a missional community, which is kind of like a small group, but it's intentionally purposed to reach a specific group of people, and, and that is their neighborhood in Hartford. And so what we're doing is you're going to maybe hear more about where Dave and Kayla are at because uh, we believe God's calling us as a church to support uh, a movement of, of seeking to, to support them in, in, in helping people come to know Christ in Hartford. And so you'll be hearing more about that as we go forward. And they're also teeing off uh, kind of the idea this morning that we're going into this series, This Is Us, as we've been for the past couple of weeks. Now, I don't know if you, if you were here last week, there was an amazingly beautiful woman that was here. Uh, uh, my much better half uh, was speaking to the ladies primarily. And this morning, uh, as we continue to talk about family, because family is core to the culture and society, we're going we're gonna to talk uh, primarily to the guys in the room. Okay. Now, ladies, if you're here, uh, I would like you to not check out because I think what, what I'm going to say and what we're going to look at scripture about is going to actually impact you and, and it's going to be relevant to you as well. So um, please don't check out. Now, I do have a few rules for you if you're here this morning and you're a, a lady. Okay. And that is, first one is no elbows. And what I mean by that is if, if I say something that, that you believe a man in your life needs to hear and he's sitting next to you, please do not elbow him. Um, what he will do is he will become defensive and that will not, he will shut down and that will not help him to listen. Uh, the same applies to number two, the look. So if you don't elbow, but instead you give the look, which usually is like, okay, like also he will become defensive about that. Also, please don't say write that down like you should write that down. That's another whole level. Uh, I found in general guys don't like to write or read. So uh, so what we're going to do instead is try to focus primarily on kind of kinesthetic or, or visual learning, which I like to do anyway because I think guys learn that way better. Um, so, so that's where we're at. Uh, we're going to talk to guys. Now, guys, if you're here this morning, I also will hone in a little bit occasionally. I'll hone a little bit in on husbands. But if you're here this morning and you're not a husband, uh, I, I believe we're going to really still find things that are relevant to you because we're going to talk about manhood, we're going to talk about leadership, and we're also going to talk about what it looks like to be a husband. And we're actually going to learn that from a guy who is not very good at any of those things. Okay. And, but, but I also know that as a man, we, as we, as men, we can learn what not to do, right guys. We don't always just have to be shown. Here's what you should do. We can also learn. Here's what, what not to do. I'll give you an example. When I was in high school, um, there were some guys that decided one night to go out and do some toilet papering. I don't know who they were, but it wasn't me. No, anyway. So, uh, we were going to toilet paper the, the volleyball coach's house. She had a daughter that we were kind of friends with. And, and where I grew up in Monticello, um, you toilet paper people's houses who are your friends. You didn't toilet paper people's houses who are your enemies or whatever because that's just weird. But you'd go get your friends. And then you'd, you'd just you'd toilet paper all over their house or all, or all over the trees. And they'd have to go clean it up, ha-ha, and then get you back. So anyway, we were at the volley, we were at a volleyball game. We said, hey, let's go at halftime. Let's get some TP. Let's go out to the coach's uh, house and let's TP that, that thing up. And so we, we did that. By the way, young people in the room, toilet papering, don't do that. That's naughty. 
Okay, it's not a good idea. No, anyway, um, so we went out, and it just happened to be we were about a week after homecoming. And we had decorated the gym as we, uh, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? You decorate the gym with streamers. Whatever. That year, we decorated the gym with, gym with metallic streamers. And so my buddy Brian, he found some of the leftovers, the remnants of the metallic streamers, and said, hey, let's take these with, because we can use these as we toilet paper this house and make it a little festive, okay? So... Um, he did that. We brought him with. So we're out in the country, about three miles out of town, kind of farmland. And, you know, we're toilet papering this place up. It's great. Things are going great. Brian takes a metallic streamer and he chucks it. And it goes up and it goes over the power lines. And it comes down. And, and so I just need to say something. It is not a good idea to throw metallic streamers over power lines. Okay, because you see this, we saw this arc, it was like, and all of a sudden, one of those boxes that was on top of the, the pole, the green ones, it blew up. All the lights in the like surrounding farm areas just went out, and you could hear kind of like, you know, cows were like, what's going on? Everything's, you know, everything's, lights are out, and so we're like, I'm pretty sure that Brian, if he'd been close to where that thing had come down, he could have died. So all, you know, all that to say, don't do that. But, but we did then what anyone else would do in that circumstance, and we ran away. Okay, like we got in our cars as quick as we could. We ran, we drove back into town, and we found out at the back half of the volleyball game that there were, that, that they were like, man, the lights were here like 10 minutes ago. The lights just went kind of flickered on and off. We're like, really? That's crazy. What are you talking about? So, um, so I tell that story because, guys, we can learn what not to do, right? We can learn from what not to do. So, guys, help me out. What did you learn from that story about what not to do? Help me out. Anthony. Any no circumstance you throw metallic streamers over power lines. That's right. That's right. Also, run away. Okay? Also, don't get caught. Things like that, right? Okay, so we can learn what not to do. Anyway, this morning we're going to learn uh, what not to do, how not to be a man, how not to be a leader, how not to be a husband from a guy named Xerxes. Okay? And if it's, guys, it's easier for you to remember, we're going to call him Xerxes this morning. Okay? We're going to call them Jerkseys. And so to do that, we're going to be in uh, the book of Esther. I'm going to get the, the other half of the coin that, that, that Stephanie was talking about last week when she talked about Esther. And so um, we're going to be in page 354. If you need a red Bible, I would encourage you to, uh, to follow along with us. We're going to, what we're going to do is we're going to read kind of the first chapter, anchor in the first chapter, and then kind of zoom in and out. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, Dave and Marilyn are passing them out. We're on page 354, just where we were last week when Stephanie was here in the book of Esther. Now, I want to give you, I know you saw glimpses of it last week, but we're talking, just to give you a little context, we're about 475 B.C., okay? So we're talking about 2,500 years ago. What had happened was 100 years before this, the Babylonian Empire came into the area of, of, of Israel, if you would, and take, took the Hebrew people captive to Babylon, okay? And so they did that, and they were in power for a while, and then the Persian Empire rose up and overtook the Babylonians, and so... What happened was the people that had been taken in exile, some of, some of the folks were allowed by the kings to go back home and start to rebuild. You'll find that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah right before Esther. They started to return back home and rebuild uh, what had happened back home in Israel and in Jerusalem. So that was roughly what we're talking about. Now, um, to, to give you just a snapshot, I want, I want to give you a whole... Uh, Cliff Notes version of what the book of Esther is about because we're not going to read the whole book, but it's kind of helpful to understand the backdrop. So Cliff Notes, here we go. There's a, there's a Persian king. His name is Xerxes, okay? Xerxes is, is, is really, his name actually his real, real name is Ahasuerus, 
Bless you. Okay, so, so, so Xerxes is this king, and he's like, I'm going to throw a party. And I'm going to throw a party for like six straight months because I just am so loaded. I'm just going to show everyone how, how rich I am. Throws a party for six months. In the middle of it, he decides he's going to also brag about his trophy wife. And he says, bring my trophy wife out here. And uh, she refuses to come. And so he then fires her as his wife and holds a beauty pageant to try to find her replacement. Well, in that beauty pageant, all these gals come together. There is a Jewish gal named Hadassah. Her Persian name was Esther. And she ends up uh, in this thing, and she ends up winning the beauty contest, if you would, and becomes the queen of Persia. Um, What's going on in the meanwhile, there's another little story over here, is Esther's uh, uncle, a guy named Mordecai, a Jewish man named Mordecai, is having a little bit of a a knocking heads with a guy named Haman, who is the right-hand man of the king to, to some extent. And Haman thinks everyone should bow down before him. And Mordecai is like, uh, as a Jewish man, I don't bow down to anybody except God himself, Yahweh. Okay? And so he won't bow down. And Haman gets so mad about this that he, he says, I'm going to have the king make a decree. He convinces the king to make a decree that on a day in the future, not to that far distant future, the Persian people can go out and, and kill all the Jewish people, exterminate them, I mean, to ethnocide. Okay? And the king says, okay. And he says, you can do it. Well, Mordecai then comes to his, his niece, uh, Esther, and says, hey, you need to do something about this. You're the queen of Persia. You need to leverage your influence for the sake of your people. And she eventually does that, saves the people. They celebrate in a holiday called Purim. And so if you want to know where Purim came from, it came from the story that we are about to read. So we're going to zoom in just in chapter 1, then back out. But I need you to know that whole story to get a little bit of context here. So we're going to read the first chapter together. Uh, Before we do that, I want to just pray briefly before we dive into God's word here. Just pray with me. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to open this up and with our eyes uh, see and with our ears hear words that are meant to be able to discern between the bone and the marrow and the joint and the sinew and that still apply to us even though they're 2,500 years later. They're so relevant. Father, show us this morning as men and as women what you're speaking to us and, and into us and want to speak through us in this word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, here we go. Chapter 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. It's Egypt. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Medea, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. Verses uh, 4 through 8 go through how big the party was. I'm going to skip down to verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a a banquet uh, for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, you know what that means, He commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, and they're listed there, verse 11, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law, and just as he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king, and then he lists them. Verse 15, according to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. He speaks of himself in third person. Verse 16, then Memucan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the people of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women. 
And so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There'll be no end of the disrespect and discord. Oh. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Medea, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then... When the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest, I'm sure. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Mimikon proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script and each people in its own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own household. Let's see how that worked out. Right, ladies? So some scholars believe that the book of Esther is to be interpreted as a comedy because of the way that the characters are positioned and set up in the story. And if you look, it's really not that different from any kind of family-based comedy sitcom you've seen. Think of King King of Queens, for example. You guys know Kevin James, right, the bigger guy? He's in, I mean, you go any... Any family-based sitcom in the last, like, two, three decades, and Mike talked about him, I think, week one to some extent. If he was up here, did he, was he up here for this? No, Dan talked about him, I think. Um, you've, got, you've got the guy who's supposed to be in a position kind of of leading his home, who is not, who's kind of acting like a buffoon. You've got a very strong, confident, proud, beautiful woman who isn't taking his baloney. And then the guy's got his cronies that gets around him, and they kind of whine about their wives together. You've seen it, right? It's all there. All the elements are there. But there are a few things that pop up that I think we as men can learn even from this if it's supposed to even be meant to be a comedy. But before we learn, I want to just make sure you discern between something here. There are different kinds of scripture, and one of the different kinds of scripture is called a descriptive text. A descriptive text describes what happened. There are other texts that are called prescriptive texts, and those are the texts that prescribe what should happen. And so I'll give you an example of a difference. What we just read was a descriptive text. Here's what happened. Here's what happened with Xerxes. Here's what happened with Vashti. A prescriptive text, if you were to go to the Apostle Paul and look at his letter to the church in Ephesus, you'll find a prescriptive text. Uh, In chapter 5, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's not a here's what happened. That's a here's what should happen. Okay, that's a prescriptive text. So now I I say that because I want to make sure you understand as we draw from this text in Esther, it is a descriptive text. So what I'm doing is I'm drawing out from it, even though it doesn't say this is what should happen. We're going to draw from it. And so there's some things that we can draw from chapter one. And the first one is this. Ready, guys? Light bulb. Ready? Number one, it is hard to make good decisions when you're drunk. Okay, it's hard to make good decisions when you're drunk. Now, I, I, I say that, and, and, and I, I thought about it as I was preparing this, and I was like, I don't think in 11 years I've actually really said anything about that out loud from the front, and so I think it needs to be said. Um, I also want to stop and say I don't want to be legalistic about this, okay, because here's the deal. Scripture says that we as followers of Jesus have the right to drink and to have wine, okay, and, and, and alcohol to some extent. We have the freedom to do that. However... What you may have run into in the past, you may have run into Christians who may be very legalistic about it and say you can't drink at all. Here's why they do it. They do it because of a couple different prescriptive texts. One prescriptive text says that um, you, uh, 
You should not be a stumbling block for a weaker brother. And what that means is if you have someone who's in the room who's an alcoholic and they see you drinking, they might think it's okay and they may start drinking. And so some people are like, I'm just not even going to mess around. I'm just not going to drink. And no one should. Okay, and that's, that's a little bit of a legalistic approach, but you can see that's where they get it from, okay? So I'm trying to empathize with that approach. Uh, the other text, though, that we get as prescriptive is that, is that Paul, right before, right before he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, he said, do not, this is a command, this is a prescribed text, do not be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery and a bunch of other things. He says, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Okay? And so, again, when we think about this, Jesus himself was called a, a drunkard. Because not because he, I think, was ever, we don't have any evidence of him actually getting drunk, but we have evidence of him being around a lot of people who did. Okay? And so, um, he's, he's, we've got that piece. It means, again, there's this element of this we're trying to navigate. And yet, here, here's the deal. I think we need to say this because there may be some guys in the room who still get drunk. Okay? And, and if you do and you're in the room, I don't say that to go, shame on you. Okay, what I what I want you to get from this is what I think Jesus is saying is he's saying, uh, I have the better wine. I have the better wine. I don't want you to be drunk because it's going to lead to all kinds of silly things. I want you to be filled instead with the spirit. It's far better than Miller Lite, like the Holy Spirit. It's better than Jack and Coke. Like, it doesn't matter what your favorite booze is. Like, don't be drunk because what's going to happen is going to lead you down the wrong path. What I want you to be filled with instead is the spirit, my Holy Spirit, which will lead to the fruit of the spirit. Okay. So I just want to, I want to say that because this is the first thing I think we can draw out of here is here's Xerxes, Xerxes, he's drunk. <clears throat> and you know what he does? He makes a bunch of dumb mistakes starting with the fact that he's drunk. And the first thing that he, the first mistake that he makes is our second learning point and that is he objectifies his wife. Okay? He objectifies his wife. So I want you to picture this. <clears throat> I actually found this. Kiwaskum's awesome. You guys have a throne just right behind, right behind. <laughs> This literally, I just had to pull this out here. We don't have this in West Bend. <clears throat> so I just want you to kind of be like imagining with me Xerxes. Xerxes. You guys know that I'm loaded, right? I mean, in the sense of money. Because I've had the party going for a long time. But it's not just that I'm rich and the king of Persia, which happens to be the biggest empire in the world right now. I also have a hot wife. I don't know if you guys have seen her or not. Her name is Vashti. Have you guys seen her? Well, if you you haven't, you need to get her out. Hey, can you go get Vashti? Can you bring her out here with all of her hotness? Okay. That's kind of my, it's my Bill Cosby drunken, okay, like, so I got, it's, it used to be funny, Bill Cosby, not funny anymore. Anyway, so, so I want you to, I want you to um, just be a woman and be like, oh, I feel so cherished that my husband would just want to parade me around in front of his drunken buddies. Like, oh, please, let me come and jump into that, right? Ladies, you're just feeling honored and cherished with that. No, you're not. And so um, here's what we can do, guys. We can learn we shouldn't objectify women, Okay including our wives. And if you guys probably, I think you probably know the stats, but if you don't, I'll tell you. Um, if you took all the revenues from professional football and baseball and basketball and hockey and you combine those revenues, you would not have the amount of revenue that's spent in the pornography industry in this country. 
Okay, if you didn't know that, you should know that because that's significant. It's very difficult. I understand when I say we shouldn't objectify. I understand the, the context that we live in. I'm a guy. I get it. Like, it's difficult to not do this. But what, what happens when we objectify women? We take these beautiful creations of God and we turn them into something less. We turn them into objects that are meant for our pleasure. And that's not a good thing. Okay? And I, I gotta be honest, I, I have, at times I do this to my wife. I find her extremely attractive. My wife Stephanie. And, and, and I know her heart. And so when I know what comes out of her, the overflow of her heart, like she just is even more attractive. She's so beautiful. And, and yet sometimes I'll catch myself objectifying her. I'll say things to her. Um, I'll say things to sometimes others. Just a week and a half ago, I was at my Michelin community. We were having dinner. And, and uh, on the side, I made a comment, I think trying to say, hey, my wife's beautiful. But I made a comment that was not honoring to her. And so I had to go and apologize to her. And I had to apologize to the guys and said, guys, here's what I said. And I apologize. And I need to repent of that because it's not honoring to her. Because it's easy to fall into that. And I, guys, I understand. She is, um, she is my wife, but she is first a daughter of the king and my sister in Christ. And so she is not an object for me to consume for my pleasure. Okay? Now, men, by all means, do we need to tell the women in our lives that they're beautiful? Yes. When was the last time you told the women in your life that they are beautiful? I'm talking about your, da- your daughters, your, your wife, your mother, your sisters, if appropriate, that they're beautiful. When was the last time you told them? We have to tell them. And I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, Troy, you can tell them they don't believe me. They'll say, whatever. I know. I get it. That's their deal. That's totally their deal. And Satan uses these lies to tell them they're not beautiful enough. He tells them all the time. He sneaks in through the culture and says, you're not beautiful enough, and you can tell them. But guys, we have to tell them. One of the reasons that they may not believe you is because the way that you say it, oh man, you're so hot. Oh, you're smoking hot. You're so sexy. Okay, like they hear that and they're like, you're just objectifying me. So don't do that. Guys, we've got to use words that we mean from our hearts that are words like, you are, you're stunning. You're gracefully beautiful. You're lovely. Yeah, I treasure you. Things like this are more honoring. Ladies, amen? Like those words? You like those words? There you go. Okay. See? We've got to be careful. So um, so we got, we got don't, you don't make good decisions when we're drunk. We shouldn't objectify women, including our wives. And number three, guys, from this first chapter, don't surround yourself with men who don't honor your wife or your marriage. Don't surround yourself with men who don't honor your wife or your marriage. Okay, in verse 13, after Vashti refuses to be your trophy wife that Jerxes wants, he gets his cronies together. And he says, what should we do, what should we do about this? And a guy with real, a real man with some gumption would have went and said, uh, Your Highness, with all due respect, this seems to be an issue between you and your bride, you and your queen. Perhaps you should go to her and perhaps you should apologize for the way in which you have He's been trying to show off her beauty. A real man would have said that. Now, he's the Persian king, like I get it, probably wouldn't have felt real comfortable doing that. Might have gotten his head cut off. I don't know. But, but I think a real man says that. Okay? Now, what happened though, and I want you guys to make sure you notice, is he, Xerxes goes to his cronies, and here's what happens. Their counsel is selfish in nature. The only thing they really care about in the council that they give is themselves. Because here's what they say. They say, oh, no, 
oh no, oh no, Vashti did something and it's going to affect me. Because like the other ladies are going to hear about this and the nobles' wives and they're going to hear out and they're going to throw a fit too. And this is going to impact me. And so their, their input is, is based on selfishness. Okay? So guys, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, if you are having problems with your, the woman in your life and you go to another guy, I want you to be re- real careful and listen to how he responds to you. Okay? Because he can empathize, he can listen, and he should. But if he starts coming at your, your wife, if he starts becoming divisive, he starts joining in with grumbling and complaining, not your guy. He's not your guy. He's not your guy. Okay? But what he should do instead is, or you should find yourself surrounded with men who will call you up into humility, who call you up into servant leadership, who will call you up to own the things that you need to own in whatever conflict you might be having. That's the guy you want. Guys like that around you to call you up to be a man. We have to surround ourselves with men who are going to honor our wives and our marriages, the ones that aren't just selfish in their motivation when they're trying to provide counsel. A couple uh, months back, there was a guy, uh, he's not part of Kettlebrook, a friend of mine, and he was struggling in his marriage a little bit. It wasn't huge, significant things. But he had a few things he was walking through, and he was sharing with me. And so I asked him a few kind of clarifying questions to make sure I understood exactly what he was talking about. And afterwards I said, hey, um, do I have your permission to give you a few thoughts on that? It's actually an important question to ask, so I'm just going to tell him what to do. I said, do I have your permission to give you a few thoughts? And he said, yeah, of course. And so I said, hey, um, have you ever asked your wife uh, the question, just a simple question, how can I serve you better? Have you ever asked your wife that? And he's like, well, no, I've never asked that. I said, do you think that might be helpful? I said, because here's what I hear you doing. I hear you actually trying to serve your wife, but I think you're trying to do it in ways that are easiest for you or maybe just like most convenient for you or ways that you're kind of good at. I said, what if you were to ask her the question, honey, how can I serve you better? He's like, that's a great question. I should probably ask her. So he went back and he asked her. And he called me two weeks later and he actually left a voicemail. And I asked him, uh, I said, can I, can I just share that voicemail um, with folks that you don't know and don't know you? He said, sure. <clears throat> so he called me. He said, Troy, I want you to know how much your encouragement to simply ask the question, how can I serve you, to my wife, and then actually listen and respond and do the things that she said, how much it is completely changing our relationship. I can't even describe how much more passion, love, and a feeling of ama- amazing feeling of intimacy and connectedness we feel uh, gratitude and appreciation that we feel for each other that we haven't felt for a while. This last week has been amazing, and I think I have greatly underestimated and greatly underserved my wife and her love language of acts of service. And so changing that has literally changed her and me. Anyway, very cool stuff. Thanks so much. Isn't that cool? Just a simple question. And so <clears throat> there's, an, there's an application, uh, and I've got it on this next slide here. Guys, so uh, it's three questions I would like you to ask uh, the, the woman in your life. How can I love Jesus? But you don't have to write this down. You know why? Because I put it in your bulletin because I knew you were going to write it down. So anyway, <clears throat> how can I love Jesus better? How can I love and serve you better? How can I lead and serve our family better? So your mission, should you choose to accept it, men in the room, is to go home and ask these three questions to the women in your lives. How can I love you, Jesus? How can I love you and serve you better? How can I lead and serve our family uh, better? Guys, have you ever asked your, your wife this, these questions? So, so those are some things we draw just from chapter 1. Now I want to I give you two more things that we can draw from uh, this book 
in a broader sense, and then we can close up here. But the first one is that is this. Men, we need to be creating proximity and being present for the women in our lives. We need to create proximity and we need to be present for the women in our lives. Now, I put these, these things here actually on purpose. What I, what I really want you to envision is that this is kind of a love, uh, this is a love seat. We didn't have one here at Kewaskum, so just pretend this isn't here. Okay, for me. Can you do that? Pretend this is a love seat. This is a lounge chair, sort of. Okay. <clears throat> and so what I think we need to do is we need to think about the way that we create proximity for the women in our lives. Now, you don't have one of these in your home. If you do, I don't know why you would. <clears throat> but you probably, guys, you probably have your lounge chair, right? You probably have a lounge chair that you like. It's got the thing. Put your feet out there. Okay? And so in a sense, there, there's, this, there's this huge language in Esther about proximity. Let's look at the next slide. Um, there's four, this is just chapter one that talks about the presence. The nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Xerxes, the seven princes of Persian Media who had access to the king's presence, and then Vashti could no longer come into presence. It's just chapter one. This is a thick, rich concept in the book of Esther of being in the presence or in proximity of the king. And so here's the question, guys. Do you have your throne that you sit on at home And when you feel ready, you will extend the golden scepter to those who may be wanting to be in your proximity. I'm watching the game right now. No, you cannot be in my presence. I'll tell you when I'm done. I'll extend the golden scepter to you. Okay? And so so do we create any proximity do we create space for the women to be, our women, the women in our lives to be near to us, or is it kind of like, you know? And guys, I'm a guy. I get it. We need to have space sometimes. We need, we need to have that. It's, we need to have rest and downtime. Like it's biblical. But I think sometimes we, we we sit in our throne, if you would, as if we're the king, and then maybe we can ex- extend. I get it. You know, he's the king of Persia. You gotta have some boundaries around who can just run up to you. Like maybe I get that. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of it instead, instead of thinking in terms of your relationship in terms of a lounge chair, I need you to think more of in terms of a love seat. Now, again, pretend this is a love seat. Now, if you, th- if you think about it, a love seat in itself, the, the furniture, it necessitates proximity, correct? Why do you think they call it a love seat? Because there's love up in here. Because you're right here. You, it, it, it necessitates that it's not just me. There's only one person that can really sit on this. This, this kind of, you, you don't feel right sitting in it by yourself. This is so weird. We need to create proximity. Now, guys, when I say proximity, I think you think something else. I know what you're thinking. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay? However, I, I think there is some, to some extent a correlation between how much proximity that we actually allow the women in our lives to have to us and the proximity they allow us to have to them. Okay, I'm not saying we do it for that reason, but, but, but guys, if we're not ever creating space to be with, to share, to listen, to truly listen with the women in our lives, we're, we're missing it. We're not creating proximity. And let me take that a step further now, because you guys know we can even go through this motion and sit in the love seat and totally not be present. We can be totally not present. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. Oh, yeah, I'm listening. Mm-hmm. 
she's not stupid. She can see you're not there. Like you're there, but you're not there. We have to be present. Uh, a, a few weeks ago, I was on a coaching call with five other guys and one of our mentors, Jeff, and, and, and Jeff said, hey guys, let's pray um, before we meet, before we kind of open up our 90 minutes together. And so we prayed and we got done. He said, hey guys, I want to ask you a question. Why do we pray before we kind of start? Is it a Christian-like ritual thing that we do? We just kind of pray before we start? And we're like, no. And then we said, we've got to set the time apart for the Lord and give some answers. And he says, okay, let me give you another idea, though. He goes, I just got out of a meeting. He's in the Northwest. He got a meeting. He goes, I just got out of a meeting with a bunch of kind of lead pastors from the Pacific Northwest region. We're trying to figure out how to bring gospel saturation to the whole region so that Jesus is known. It's kind of a lot going on. And he goes, that was what's behind me. I've got some things in front of me after this meeting. And what I want to do is I actually want to be present for 90 minutes with you guys. In order to do that, I have to pray and say, God, would you take care of what just happened here? And would you take care of what's going to happen here so I can be right here? And when he said that, like light bulbs went off in my head because I'm like, oh, man, there, how many times is it that it's not just my wife or, I'm, or my kids. I'm there, but I'm not there. Like I'm there, but I'm not there. I'm not present. I'm not present. We have to be present. In fact, uh, about a month and a half ago, I was in the office, <clears throat> Bridget Files on our administrative staff team, and, and her and I were working through a few logistic things, and we were standing and talking, and, and she was talking, and, and what happened was she was going through some details that I didn't care about, and so I started to walk away back to my office, and she said to me, she goes, Troy, can you please not walk away from me when I'm talking to you? And I was like, oh my goodness, my body just did what my mind had done. And that was just walk away from her, like right when she was in the middle of talking. And I said, Bridget, first of all, thank you so much for having the courage to just totally call me on that because that is baloney. I was totally dishonoring to you, totally disrespectful, and I apologize and repent of that because I wasn't being present. And so what this means, guys, is we, we have to be present. And here's one of the things I do is, is when I'm on my way home, I, I'm driving and I'll go into Villa Parkinson neighborhood and I'll pull over on Stanford and I'll sit there because I know as soon as I draw on that corner, I don't know what's awaiting me there. I know I got four nuts coming up the street. They may be jumping on my car. Plus, I got eight neighbor kids that may be in my house, uh, maybe on my roof. I don't even know. <clears throat> and, and then I'm just walking into that. I've got a meeting later on tonight that's significant that I have to be prepared for. I just came out of a heavy meeting, and I'm not ready to be present. When my kids say, Dad, watch me, I can't. <clears throat> my, my wife says, Honey, so this happened today. I'm, I'm like, Uh huh. I'm not listening. And so I have to take time, and I have to say, God, I need you to take care of what just happened and what's about to happen. So I can be here now and present. So guys, we have to be present. We have to be present. And then Jeff took it a step further and he says, guys, let's think about this. When we're present, what are we doing? He says, we're demonstrating the gospel to the people that we're with. Like, okay. He says, we believe in a God who is present. We believe in a God who is Emmanuel, God who came to live with us. And then God who sent his spirit to dwell in us. He's like, so when we are with people and we are fully present, there is a peace that we're, we're actually demonstrating the gospel because we believe in a God who is fully present. It's a beautiful thing. And so, guys, we can actually be demonstrating the gospel to, our, to the women in our lives, to the people in our lives, when we're actually present. Okay? So we need to create proximity and we need to be present. Okay? One more thing before we close. <clears throat> so one more thing worthy of mention when you look at the book of Esther, and that is this. There is no mention of God in the entire book of Esther, not one time. God's not brought up once in the book of Esther. And some folks would say, well, here's why and here's why. Let me, let me give you maybe a reason why that's the case. 
Perhaps the reason Esther is not brought up in the book, or God is not brought up in the book of Esther, is because Xerxes thinks he's God. Perhaps God isn't brought up because Xerxes thinks he's God. I mean, after all, he's sitting on his throne. You know, he's 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 got all this money, he's throwing all these parties. I mean, would you do that if you had that kind of money? I don't know. Think about it. I mean, you're like, well, I don't have a harem. Would you if you could? I mean, he's got his golden scepter. That women's got women got to take twelve months of beauty treatments just before they can be in his presence. Why? Because the world revolves around him. And so I wonder, guys, if 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 God is not part of your story, your family story, are you not being Xerxes? Because you think you're God. And I can tell you what, everyone that reads this book, reads the book of Esther, and looks at Xerxes and thinks this way, it's a comedy. He's, it's laughable. He's not, a, he's not a good leader. He's not a good man. He's not a good husband. It's a joke. And so if you're sitting on that throne thinking that you're God in your home, and there's no other mention of God because you think you are, I just need you guys to know that you're, you're just like, it's a comedy. It's laughable. It's laughable. And with that posture, if we sit on that throne with that posture, we will never be real men. We'll never be real husbands. We'll never be real leaders that God intends for us to be. It's not until we bow and submit to the true king that we'll actually ever be the men that we were made to be. Until we're willing to take off our crowns and get off our thrones. There's no mention of God in the book of Esther, and yet every single page screams his name because every single page draws us to yearn for a better leader, draws us to long for a leader and a true husband. And Jesus told his disciples, he said, hey guys, all the scripture is about me. All of it. All the scripture is about me. That's what Jesus said, including Esther. Of course it is. Because Jesus is the king that Xerxes will never be. Jesus is the perfect husband to his bride, the church. Jesus is the perfect leader who is ultimately sovereign. Jesus is the one who is the humble, true servant king. Jesus is the one who was not drunk, but filled completely with the Holy Spirit. The one who did not objectify us because he made us. The one who, though he was surrounded by those who didn't honor each other, he didn't make selfish decisions. The one who made proximity with God possible by his own blood and by his own death and the one who made God's presence in us and with us possible because he, being God in very nature, took on the form of a slave and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He's the perfect man. He's the perfect husband. And he's the perfect leader. His name is Jesus Christ. And guys, until we see him for who he is, we will never be the men that we were made to be. But once we see him for who he is, and once we respond to him as he deserves, then we'll begin to become the men that we were made to be. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's seek him so we can become those men. And let's do it together. Okay, let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to learn from even Xerxes what not to do, knowing that every single page of this book screams the perfect king, screams about the perfect husband and the perfect man. Your son, Jesus, who didn't, Um, stay distant. You sent him here to show us. So he could navigate all the things, the temptations, and yet be without sin. So he could 
he could come and demonstrate what it looks like to be a servant leader, a true king, the kind of king that our hearts long for, the kind of husband, husband that, 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 us, that the women among us long for and deserve. And, and Father, help us as the men in the room, help us to submit to that man who is not just a man, who is God. So that we may be the men that we're made to be. Help us, Father, we confess that we sometimes do these things selfishly, whether we, whether we drink or objectify. We do that because we're, we think we're God. We confess it to you. We want to repent. We want to turn away and find you and then follow you by your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.